0: greetings dragon slayers uh i am delighted today to have with us as a guest somebody who actually helped launch our first podcast on dragon slaying but somebody i hope we can hear more of and that's uh, my son seth bitker seth uh, is a very humble gentleman but good lord he has accomplished an incredible amount in his uh, short time on earth seth was a Honors graduate from Caltech, a theoretical mathematician that morphed himself into a software engineer, uh, is a quant consultant working for Michael Bloomberg on Wall Street, and had time to write articles about autism, celiac disease that have been published in referee journals, and most interestingly, did a beautiful history of the great influenza epidemic of 1918 uh, called Grip Over Gotham, which is available on Amazon. It's a wonderful history. uh, And I must say very well written. And I encourage you, if you wanna see some good writing, good history about epidemiology, uh, Seth penned it. Uh, Seth also in his spare time uh, has pursued an interest in genealogy. And as we're talking about heritage, I just wanted to say one thing today. I know that we had talked about this before. Uh, We're witnessing a strange paradox in our country right now. Uh, I had the unfortunate experience of witnessing videos of people on our college campuses screaming death to the jews and death to america now that's kind of a silly paradox in that uh, this is among the most tolerant countries in the world and yet we see this happening i am reminded of and i hope all of us know this history well we've witnessed genocide committed against native americans against african americans uh against Armenians throughout the world. There has been these surges over our history of one people attempting to eliminate another. And we're continuing to witness this, but just to remind people that within my own lifetime, the Nazis destroyed more than 6 million Jews in Europe. That is they essentially decimated the European population of Jews what had once been a concentration of Jewish people in Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia is no longer there. Actually, the highest concentration, I'm sorry, the highest number of Jewish people in the world right now resides not in Israel, but the United States. Uh, so this is indeed a land of tolerance and we need to remember that. Uh, as we talk about genealogy, uh, Seth, I guess the first question I'd like to ask you, and Todd, I encourage you to join us here because I know that you have shared interests. What catalyzed your interest in genealogy?
1: Oh, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, so first, thank you for having me on your podcast, you guys. I <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so this, this is terrific. So, so in terms of... Uh, you know, interest in genealogy. Um, so we lived in Arizona, which was sort of isolated from anybody else in the family. So it was a beautiful place, but it was isolated from anybody else in the family. So every once in a while, some distant relative would come in to visit. And the natural question was, how is this person connected to us? And then it just became sort of a question of wow, that's kind of interesting that that's, uh, cousin Lenny, how's he related to us? And, you know, and then, then thinking back on all these different people who came before, and it's always just sort of a miracle that, um, you know, we came into being, but I mean, it's true of everybody, sort of, it's a miracle, but it's reality, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I, I do recall when you were just a kid, um, I had an uncle and you had a great uncle, Max, uh, Max was my father's younger brother. Uh, You didn't have the good fortune of knowing my dad. My dad, actually, his last visit was to see that you indeed did have the equipment to carry on the mail line. Uh, (laughs) He he saw your diaper change checked out soon thereafter. Uh, uh, An inspiring man. Uh, But you spent a lot of time on the phone with Uncle Max. Tell me about that. What what? How did you guys connect? Because there was a very special connection there.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was just interest. So he was a amazing guy. He was born in, uh, I think it was 1895 or something like that, which, uh, you know, just even then seemed like a very long time ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, he... Um, you know, he 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 lived through a lot, and it was it was just fascinating to ask him about you know what what the past was like. I mean, it, it sounds like it was. I mean, well, more than it sounds like it was a lot rougher than the present.
2: <laughs> right.
1: These these poor people had like uh, you know like I I think I think you know in, in the houses that he lived at initially they had outhouses, right? I mean, that's just a different world.
2: <laughs> right. Not you're not camping. <laughs> this-
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this was in Detroit. So this is this is freezing cold. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I know um Todd, you you have some uh, an amazingly illustrious predecessor, right?
0: The, <laughs> the we're, we're actually not going to be talking about Todd's predecessor. Oh, we're
1: not. Okay. I apologize. Okay. Okay. So we'll we'll stick stick with uh, uh Uncle Max. Right. So, so he he, uh, he 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 you know he was born in 1895 in New York City. They went back to Detroit and uh, lived there much of their lives. And then eventually he had the great intelligence to leave California. <laughs> so, so he wound up in uh, San Francisco Bay area. And um, I think he sold suits. Does that sound right, Dad? Yeah, I
0: think he the. Family had a little bit of about our family our my grandfather person I didn't know we, you and I have that in common we really didn't know our paternal grandfathers, but my paternal grandfather with his brother uh emigrated from uh Lithuania, uh and uh, we don't you you know more about the origin of the family's name how did the family name come about
1: yeah so it's it's a mystery the uh i guess the the sort of semi official version that's been passed down to us is that um they were fleeing from somewhere on a river and their their name was uh block or blockars and uh they saw a wagon sign and on it there was the name Bitker and supposedly took that name uh, and used it because they didn't want to have a Jewish sounding name which this uh, this story doesn't make any sense on a lot of levels, but it's, I mean, there's probably some truth to it at some level. <laughs> I'm sure they were fleeing from somewhere, well, well, <laughs> but um, the, the, the Bitker name is a is a pretty Jewish name, and there's other Bitkers in Lithuania, <laughs> so I'm not sure about this, but it is an interesting story.
0: Well, well the family myth was that uh, these boys, and they were just adolescents, weren't they, about 18 and 16 or that about, and they were about to.
1: Yeah, they were young.
0: They were about to be conscripted in uh, the Russian army. And the Russian army uh, used Jewish boys as cannon fodder. They were essentially the first guys in line. And so if your kid was going to be conscripted by the Russian armies, you're going to need to say goodbye to the kids. So these kids fled. And the myth was that they had sought refuge in this shopkeeper's office. And I believe is bitker a rough approximation of what a cooper is in German, uh, something such as that?
1: Yes, yes, it is. Anyway, so
0: they, shot, they sought refuge in the shopkeeper's office, and he was a barrel maker of some sort. Wow. And uh, the Russian army, which had no concern about borders, hmm, I wonder how similar that is to things today, but <laughs> uh, they go into the shopkeeper's office and they look in the cellar and they see these two frightened boys and are about to extricate them from the shopkeeper's office. And he said, no, wait, these are my sons. And, uh, I suppose it, at least as the myth is in honor of that. They took the name. Victor.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, I'm, I'm sure. Well, th- that sounds like a reasonable, but embellished version. <laughs> we, we, we know that, um, they, they lived in Alexotas, which was a little bit south of uh, Kovna, Lithuania. And uh, we, we know that um, the oldest boy in the family, a guy named David Bitker, or Blockars, uh, lived in East Prussia, uh, possibly on a farm there. And uh, so to your point, uh, it's absolutely the case that the Russian army would draft these boys into the army at a very young age and they'd keep them in the army for 25 years, which was effectively, uh, and it wasn't like, you know, they they supported all sorts of uh, what Jewish heritage in that Russian army, right? So it's sort of like losing your kid. Um, And and the rule was if you had one boy, you could keep him, but all the other boys were to be drafted into the army so what they did is as the kids got into um you know just pretty young essentially uh if you can imagine the the, the parents lived with the family in alexotas they needed to get them out of russia and so probably what they did is send them down the river to prussia where their brother david bitker was and then they uh immigrated from there on to the united states so in eighteen eighty we know that your grandfather Elias Bitker immigrated and in eighteen eighty three his younger brother uh Nocum wolf Bitker immigrated uh and then and then uh David Bitker and his family came over in uh I think eighteen eighty six or seven something like that
0: so the younger brother came first then
1: that's right the younger brothers came first, but I think the key point was. The older brother was safe because he was in East Prussia. So right. East Prussia was German. Not he, was the, he was the
2: conduit Russia. to getting everybody safe.
1: Exactly, exactly. And he he played a vital role in this whole thing. He's sort of the hero of the story in some sense. My, I sort of imagine him sort of you know giving these kids funds to get them over here, and then he came over with the rest of his family as, once he knew so everybody was
2: safe in cool. and, and in the U.S. Well, you know, it's yeah. an interesting paradox. So,
0: so it. It was at that time that if anyone were persecuting the Jews, it would be the Russians. Uh, and they did seek refuge in what later became Germany.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, its um, well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I've looked at some of this because there were, oh, you know, p- pogroms in the 1880s. And I think sort of the traditional view of this is that they were, um Uh, sort of instigated from the top but I mean I've I mean you could, you can there's debates on this I think in some of the literature but my my sense is um, uh, you know some of this I think was uh, instituted from the bottom and then you know you'd you'd have the the people at the top I mean I'm sure they 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 were what supported general um, uh, anti-semitic policies but they didn't support like killing people, because I think, you know, I think they realized that probably wasn't going to be good for them as the, you know, an empire. So there was a sort of a balancing act. But I mean, I'm sure it was a mess. It wasn't, and there were were anti-Semitic policies, like you'd have to pay taxes, like taxes on candles or something that was specifically Jewish. But I don't think the idea was the Russian state probably didn't want to have all these people killed because that just creates chaos.
0: So let let me ask you a different kind of question. Uh so many in our family if you look back were people like tailors and craftsmen and others and we had kind of the paradox i guess that david came a family that from a family that had apparently land correct
1: well i mean that's a great point so uh I'm sort of inferring that he had land in East Prussia. Um, he, he became a farmer when he came to the US. So I really don't know if he had land in East Prussia. But one thing that is pretty interesting to me is the the area that our forebears lived in south of Kovna, um, Jews could own land. Um, so it's possible that they had some some land there. Um, but there were there were rules in in much of uh, Russia that you know you 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 couldn't own land if you were Jewish and there's all sort of restrictions. But it, but I think because that area was part of Poland, that it's there was some some ability for Jews to own land if they had the funds.
0: So other question is what role did the Jewish initiation, for example, the Bar Mitzvah, play in the education of Jewish boys.
1: I mean, it's a great question. I have, I have, I really don't know much about that. So I, um, let's see. I guess I can speculate. But well, I guess the... I, I mean, I, I would imagine. I and mean, one thing that's sort of interesting is, you know, and this is this is a different side, but uh, the the whole thing with um, uh, circumcision, you know, the there's like a official guy, I think the, um, Sochette is that right? Something like that. Yes. Uh, the, the, so, so the, you know, there, there, there was a whole ritual and there's a whole thing around that. Of course that has nothing to do with education, <laughs> but, but they, they, they recorded that stuff. It was important to them. Right. And so, so like, uh, there are records on a different side of, uh, you know, this, this guy was a, um, Oh gosh! Essentially, a godfather during the ceremony, and they write that down. I don't remember what the official uh, sandok. I think is it's like an honorary person who's often a grandfather, but could be somebody else. So you'd you'd have this recorded, ho- holding the kid while they're going through the procedure. I guess.
0: So, is there any foundation to the hypothesis that the circumcision ritual is accountable for why Jewish men have to compensate so much? <laughs>
1: No idea. I'm sure there's, we can go all sorts of places with that.
0: <laughs> you know, in my own <laughs> nation, it begins with a kid who is saying, whatever happened to the last two inches of my Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yeah, you have to be very careful when you're snipping there, right?
0: <laughs> Amen. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about, well, how is it when we look at successful immigrant experiences, we see among Jews, we see among people from the subcontinent, among others, this incredible valuation of education. Where did that come from?
1: I mean, I, I don't think I have really special expertise in this, but I mean, one one thing about um, Jewish heritage is you could say that, you know, they're people of the book, right? So they, they 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 really value the ability to read because you're you know you want to be able to read the Talmud and uh, you know there's a whole um, uh, history of, of uh, debating all these things right I mean uh, so so I I would imagine that's part of it and and you know some people said that you know if you if you have a very learned person who's studying Talmud and uh, doing all these good things that they, uh, you know, they, they, they try to get them married quickly because they want to have them continue this and then they'll have more kids or something. Who knows?
0: <laughs> so I had the good fortune of uh, being in the audience up in the University of Nevada when Leonard Niboy, the actor who took the role of Spock, uh, who actually inspired much in that role, talk about how Spock, the character, took a lot from Jewish heritage, uh, including go forth and multiply. <laughs> and uh, if you look at the works of Leonard Nimoy, he really was very interested in Jewish mystical history. But one of the things that emerged from that and uh, other studies was that there's kind of a paradox, uh, an unfortunate paradox, I think, for uh If you look at the history of of the church, somewhere around the, I believe it was the ninth century, uh, the Roman church determined that they were losing a lot of wealth because the priests would have kids and church lands would be dispensed among priests' kids. So as a consequence, to become a priest, you had to commit to celibacy. So whether you committed to celibacy or not, you could not acknowledge a child to dispense your lands conversely jewish rabbis were expected to produce multiple kids and apparently they were had had so much status that they were kind of like the equivalent of what the jewish doctor is today Uh, they were sought upon as seen as ideal partners for beautiful young jewish women and so I suspect that some of our genetic legacy, uh, and our, uh, the over valuing of, well, the valuing of book learning emerged from that legacy of multiple generations of people that were being valued for their literacy. Yeah. I, I, Be
2: smart, get sense. a hot chick.
0: <laughs> Actually, I have, Actually uh, we need that as a, um, you know a logo for one of your t-shirts.
2: <laughs> learn to read. I I, I I I can't think of a better reason to learn to read personally. So and learn yeah. to be educated. That's yeah. a that's a good motivator.
0: Yeah, great way to pick up checks. Yeah, right. Absolutely.
2: And just perpetuate your uh your family line, right? Right.
0: <laughs> well yeah. And thing... make
2: sure that they're all beautiful along the way. <laughs> good good luck.
0: So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is just I see a lot of fascination about genealogies. People try to um, search for their heritage. In fact, uh, you know, right now there's an ongoing uh, very popular PBS show uh, by Lewis Gates on Roots where we're looking at heritage. Um, and so I think as we attempt to understand the richness in our culture, uh, we learn stories. And I think one of the things that's fascinating about this is to look at the commonalities between certain traits that we have now and traits that our ancestors may have had. Uh, now, I have to acknowledge that there are wonderful illustrations of accomplishments that, you know, j- shared by you and your sister. Uh, Seth's sister is a physician, uh, but has transferred a lot of that energy into being a horticulturist.
2: Wow! Uh, so uh, that's actually it, super interesting. We're, yeah, we need
1: to get yeah. You could have her on Her on, yeah.
2: Absolutely, that's yeah, I've, so cool. I've,
0: I've been trying to conscript her, but she she she, <laughs> she, she is. Most likely to greet me. I hope she's listening today. In fact, let's try to trigger her. But you know, frequently when I ask her to do things like this. I get an expletive like "dad."
1: Yeah, it's it's probably not a good idea to try
0: to trigger her.
2: Right. I, it doesn't sound like it. I've never met this person, but let's let's not do uh, that. You no, know,
0: Rachel is this very beautiful, very bright, very articulate woman. Who? Hi, Rachel. Hey who God placed on earth with a specific person purpose, not only to have beautiful kids and a great, be a great mom and so on and wife, but to humble me. Uh, She sounds like a badass.
1: She's yeah. Yeah. Dad, you probably made it so that it's less likely she'll come on.
0: (laughs) Oh, she's, she's wonderful. Anyway, what I was going to say is that we not only have distinguished people and we can talk about some of the people in our family, uh, in fact, a few, let's get a shout out to the other line of, on the Grossman side, uh, we have, well, let's see. Uh, we've got one person, or just a couple of guys, my mother's brothers who were part of the Jewish mafia.
1: Wow. I, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, I, I It's I've cool to say story. though. Yes. Yeah. It, it is cool to say. So it's, go ahead. Sorry.
0: I, I would say may have been. May have been. <laughs> I see. But the son of one of those people was a very distinguished uh, young man who was allegedly killed in World War II. Uh, He was uh, found allegedly missing in action uh, at the Battle of, of the Bulge and he was determined to be dead. And his mother refused to acknowledge his death. She was convinced that he was still alive. And people would pursue her and say, you know, you really need to let go of this. Well, she turned out to be right. Oh, wow. He was alive. He uh, his name was Leonard Grossman, and he had been wounded in the Battle of the Bulge. In the Battle of the Bulge, you know, all sorts of artillery shells were blasting everywhere. So there were body parts and dog tags and it was just, you know, horrible carnage. And Lenny was picked up from the battlefield and he was ultimately transported to a hospital in Belgium where his roommate was the Senator Robert Dole.
2: That's interesting.
0: Uh, And he, in those days, uh, because airmail was so expensive, these people would write letters on this onion skin paper. And he wrote a letter to his mother and said, you know, you may have heard that I was injured and uh, I'm, well and we'll come back home well lenny uh did come back home he was rehabilitated in a va hospital and then it was almost like jesus i mean he had come back from the dead and he was this bright very charming very articulate man uh who went to u of m go blue law school and then uh practiced as an attorney uh he married a widow and they produced She had actually multiple kids in tow, and they also had multiple other kids. Uh, But he was just a delightful fellow, and he was the kind of guy that would come by my house. And uh, my mother, uh, who was the aunt that survived her brother, would regularly have my cousins come over for meals. And Lenny would regularly challenge me with vocabulary lessons, and if there's anything uh, that zach may have gotten from me it may have be, been, been because of lenny and his interest in words so and he was a guy who was kind enough to let me try to learn how to drive a manual transmission car in his mercury uh, and somehow the car survived uh, later in my adolescence when i was going through my own developmental challenges lenny and his wife audrey sheltered me and I remember one summer when I was working and uh, I believe I was going to uh, uh, college at Wayne State taking a course in organic chemistry. Lenny lent me his T-Bird. Wow. He had a two-seated <clears throat> T-Bird and he would lend this kid his T-Bird and trusted me with it. Wow. Uh, so Lenny lived up to the cool name Lenny. Oh, he,
1: yeah he, he was a very generous guy a wonderful person
0: but he was also instrumental in where we have something in common uh, Seth's father-in-law uh, is a an African-american man named Napoleon Williams and Napoleon who also a bit like Rachel is a very distinguished guy but shuns the spotlight right was instrumental in uh supporting civil rights legislation. And actually, uh, as an attorney, he bootstrapped himself from being an impoverished kid in Tennessee to getting into Harvard and becoming a very distinguished attorney working in behalf of civil rights, actually part of Thurgood Marshall and others efforts in civil rights. So Lenny, not even knowing about Napoleon himself, had been instrumental in advancing civil rights in Detroit, and actually was one of the founding members of the Michigan ACLU. So, you know, that's one heritage from one side of the family, uh, from the son of a, somebody who allegedly was an enforcer of <laughs> from the Purple Gang. But you say that is probably not the case.
1: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. But I, I don't know. I think we we asked Lenny about this, right? I, I thought I thought he said he. They knew the purple game, but probably weren't of it. Something like that. Well,
0: but I I, th- I, I think if you're a Jewish kid growing up in Detroit, where God knows things were quite challenging, you'd want to have it known that you were wired into the purple game. That was, I'm my, sure, that, that was that was my sure that's part of it. Right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that was my grandfather on my mom's side. Uh, he was not in the Italian mafia, but man, he would let you. He wouldn't. He would let you believe that he was.
1: No kidding. It may be the same thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a cabbie, and he took, in Brooklyn, my, my huh. dad. And he, he my dad said you could tell he was a poser if you really pressed him, but from outwardly, he looked like he was down with the mob.
0: No kidding. I, I do recall as a kid, I had, uh, I, and part of that is in, in the book Dragon Slaying, that uh, Seth's son, Zach, wrote this uh neat autobiography of me or by not autobiography biography of me and in it i spent a summer as a lifeguard in new york city right. i would actually outside of new york city on long island long island and i
2: yes. long Island.
0: yes <laughs> but i do recall that at that time uh the safest place in new york was little italy because no one wanted to mess with the mafia
2: nope yeah, my uh, my mom's parents both came over—one from Naples, one from Sicily—and uh, she was born. My mom grew up on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. Oh, no kidding! Yeah,
0: wow. Which gotcha. is now my daughter-in-law grew up in Brooklyn, and then yes, there's a lot of people who grew up in Brooklyn, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not that unique, huh? Okay. <laughs>
2: shout out to Brooklyn. But but
1: that's terrific. Todd, did you want to mention some things about your mother's side or?
2: or Oh, my mom's side is pretty cool. My mom's side's cool because it's just a bunch of uh, Catholic Italians that came over in, I'm not exactly sure when, but I know that it was her, my mom's parents, my grandparents were the, work came over. And set up shop in Brooklyn, and then the entire family over the course of the next twenty, thirty years made their way out to the West Coast. So they're now all in the Bay, Petaluma, California. Places like oh, great! The entire fi- family over the course of my mom's lifetime has migrated out to the West Coast. So now they're those. They're from you know they're from New York. They still all have the accents, and I'm like, oh, you guys have been in California for thirty years, like. <laughs> Part of their identity, though. So what's your mom's maiden name? Bergamo. Oh. The Countess Bergamo from, I believe, Sicily in Italy. Wow. That's great. well, genealogy. We've never really dug into it. My grandma on my dad's side did all kinds of research, so there's more info. But, uh, yeah, it's, I'm fascinated now. You guys are making me want to just dig in and try to learn some stuff for sure. Well,
1: yeah, there's all sorts of opportunities now, all the records and the DNA. Right,
0: right, right, right. So on on Seth's maternal side, his his maternal uh, grandfather was uh, an esteemed social psychologist uh, who was an elite tennis player. and uh, He played on uh, – didn't he play in the University of Iowa tennis team? I,
1: I, I don't know. I don't think he was an elite tennis player, but it's nice to say.
0: <laughs> well, he was a damn good tennis player. He was athletic. Okay. Yeah, and I think some of you – I'm pretty sure that if I looked at what uh, 23andMe has to say about my my fast twitch fibers, which are actually fairly sparse, uh, you know, whatever athletic activity I did was mostly endurance based. Right. But from your side, you know, that's where you get all your wonderful athletic skills. Seth, Seth played tennis and was on the uh, number one tennis team as a freshman in arizona but decided to concentrate on uh, his studies instead but he's...
1: it was true it was the number one tennis team i think it was something like eighth on it <laughs> so, so it was not that impressive
2: are you still in az seth uh,
1: no, i know i am in connecticut
2: oh gotcha he aspires yeah.
1: but yeah, I, I arizona is beautiful it's it's uh you know, most beautiful place i think i've lived i mean california is beautiful too but
2: yeah reno's pretty cool when you get out in the rural areas you know it reminds me a A. lot of arizona actually
1: yeah it's it's, it is amazing there well actually you guys have a great great life life.
0: yeah well (laughs) reno has what inspired me about reno is very much like where seth's grandparents live was aston colorado right and uh yeah
2: (laughs) snow-capped mountains surrounding everything
0: (laughs) yeah art festivals all that stuff very cool um What is what is the piece about Charlemagne in your your maternal family history?
1: I I don't know. I mean I I think um I think there was some tree that I saw somewhere which seemed to indicate some connection, but I'm not sure if I believe the tree anymore that that I saw it on. So I I mean I guess you could say that pretty much everybody from western Europe is descended from Charlemagne on some some side i mean I, I'm, I'm sure if you accept uh what people of like jewish heritage or other heritage that's not christian but i would guess that um huge a huge proportion of 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 the uh um, what the people and from from western european traditional heritage probably have have some descendants from charlemagne
0: so when seth was about 15 years old is when i learned the true meaning of humility because I thought I was a pretty decent basketball player. But at that age, he was getting boards from me and uh, was a fairly fierce basketball player. In fact, one of the great joys of my life is when Seth was living in Hoboken, New Jersey, we would, we would play two on two basketball with some of the kids in Hoboken and occasionally won games, as I recall. <laughs>
1: The, the the these were the six year olds, right?
2: Well, you're dunking on them on the short rim right.
0: <laughs> They were terrified of Seth.
2: Are you tall, Seth?
1: i I am. i'm I'm six foot five or so six
2: There you six. go. Yeah. So yeah. so you you didn't really have a choice about basketball.
1: That's right. did Did you play a sport time?
2: I played football in high school and then was injured and then decided that Nintendo and stuff like that was way cooler.
1: That sounds great.
2: We grew up riding BMX bikes and fishing for largemouth bass in the daylight and then playing Mario and Metal Gear and stuff at night. We were nerds like before it was cool to be a nerd.
0: So That's terrific. Should you come to visit? Todd and I have decided that we're going to learn to fish together here.
1: Oh, wonderful. It sounds like Todd already knows how to fish. (laughs) Maybe he can teach
2: you. You know, it was pretty cool. We just went to where we grew up and my brother and I had a very much a huck Finn type of, you know, upbringing. Barefoot for six months a year, fishing, riding our bikes around, you know, playing in streams and ponds and just insanely grateful for our upbringing. But we just went back to our little lake. And it was so cool. There was new dads with new little ten-year-olds, and teaching them how to oh, bait their hooks. Nice. And I had a bit majorly emotional moment. We were just walking around the lake with our dogs, and I'm like listening to Drake of all artists in <laughs> in my little pouch right here. And I just see this dad like explaining how to put the rubber worm on the hook to this little guy, and then showing him how to cast it out. And I just was like, "Wow, everything is so cyclical and so cool." So when Seth was about,
0: I don't know. He must have been about six years old, if that, and we would fish at a local lake in Scottsdale, and we cast it out the line, and uh, Seth hooked a fish, but he was so excited that rather than reel the fish in, he just walked backward, the poor fish got pulled up on the land that's a we, good strategy yeah well it yeah. works i
1: i think that was a bamboo pole i don't think it even had a had a like a, a it, it did have like you could you could
0: no no really you're right like, you're, no you're right it was a bamboo pole and you just so just had to pull it back yeah so we had this little catfish that were
2: that was swimming <laughs> around that's great <laughs> yeah fishing is cathartic and my dad uh i was like dad we should go fishing you know it's been a long time we should fish and he just gave me the cold, not cold look, but just like a, just kind of a sad look. And he said, I can't, man. It reminds me too much of my dad.
1: Really? Oh my goodness. That's really moving, touching. It
2: was very heavy because I, yeah. it didn't even occur to me that he would say that, but him and his dad fished a bunch. Wow. Yeah. So he was like, eh, you know, I'd much rather go on a hike or <laughs> something than mm-hmm. go fishing. It's interesting.
1: So he'd taken you fishing too or not? Oh, he
2: so taught my brother fish. and I had a fish at this little lake that I was just talking about. Taught us how to shoot, taught us how to fish, all of the things, you know, uh, the dad does. But when it came like, hey, let's go, you know, sit on the, you know, bank and fish for a few hours and just enjoy the, the act of fishing. He was like, no, 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 that's, I don't do that anymore. I can't do it.
1: What was this? So, so, when he first taught you, it was before his dad had passed? Right. Or, or... Absolutely. I see. Got yeah. it.
2: And our grandfather Got it. had a lot to do with teaching us, but he was teaching us how to trout fish in a boat, my grandfather. My dad. I see. Fish for largemouth bass in a lake. Wow. A different setup. But yeah, a lot of fishing, a lot of camping, a lot of that when we were kids.
1: Do you do you remember like a particular moment where you caught a big fish when you were really young and it was sort of like a, you know, a really fun?
2: I remember a big fish being caught in my presence and it ah being like the Northern California record for.
1: Really? Unbelievable.
2: Our friend Brian, you know, we're all fishing like we always were. And he's like, everyone get over here. Come here quick, quick, quick. And we came over <laughs> a gigantic largemouth bass. So, I mean, yeah, we caught good average fish all the time, but we saw a couple monsters just because we were like always doing it, you know. Mathematically, we were bound to catch and or see a gigantic fish get caught, you know.
0: That's terrific. So, so our heritage, my dad uh, who was about 40, I think it was 47 when I was born, almost a grandfather like age.
2: Whoa, 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 whoa! Grandfather-like age? I'm 50. So that's what we're we're calling 47 <laughs> grandfather-like.
0: Man, I'm 83. So okay, okay.
2: Seth, did you did you like being called grandfather-aged?
1: <laughs> well, I think I'm, i I hope to be there someday. I'm not there yet.
0: <laughs> well, at any rate, he he. It was my brother who taught me, you know, how to ride a bike, can play football and play baseball. But it was my dad. He, he liked to go fishing. And I do recall that we went smallmouth bass fishing uh, in, outside of in an area near uh, Lake Michigan, a place called Charlevoix. And my brother and I did a lot of fishing. And a few years ago, uh, unfortunately I had planned to join my brother in Alaska, but I had this command performance to have my oral exams in Nevada when I was moving up here. So I sent Seth as my surrogate to Alaska and Seth had the joy of fishing with his Uncle Jim. And one of the unfortunate parts of that is that in Soldotna, Alaska, Soldotna was kind of this area, the epicenter of silver salmon fishing uh, that uh, Seth's Uncle Jim had scoped out and was a great place. But there was a uh, a Chinese restaurant there that specialized in highly concentrated MSG-laced <laughs> food. And prior to going, did he take you halibut fishing? Did he do the same thing he did with me, or not?
1: Oh yes, right, right before the halibut fishing.
0: Right before the halibut
2: fishing. The Chinese food.
0: Yeah, Uncle Jim. Uh, <laughs> fested Seth on this all you can eat (laughs) MSG diet and
1: get some more of that brown gravy.
2: (laughs) It's the good stuff.
0: And that was kind of unfortunate experience. Well, you know, fast forward to two years later and I actually get to make the trip and unaware of the intelligence that Seth had already gathered. (laughs) I ate at the same restaurant and had the same unfortunate experience. Uh, I've written several small essays about fishing with Uncle Jim. And one, one thing that comes to mind is if I could, when I was a, a little boy, thats no, no, growing up, I was about 13 years old and I had this ravenous appetite. And I joined my brother and one of his friends on a smelt fishing expedition. Smelt fishing is something that's very big in Michigan. And we what it entails for those of you who are not initiates is that you get up um, and uh, you go to a place where their smelt are running and you you take a net and somebody goes out into cold water and then you pull the smelt in, unlimited quantities of smelt, and you then fill bushel baskets with these little sardine-like critters At which point, after filling all the bushel baskets, you rush back to your home where you spend hours cleaning the smelt. At which point, sometime around 7 a.m. in the morning, you present your friends and your neighbors with these little packages of smelt. And it's my contention that the first time anyone ever said on receiving a gift, oh, you
2: really shouldn't
0: have. (laughs)
2: <laughs> burr snack little weird little kippers or something sounds like it At one of
0: these events uh, my brother had uh, taken me to a all-you-can-eat chicken restaurant outside of a place called frankenmuth michigan and i was sitting down and with my ravenous appetite i was eating chicken and my brother kept saying Tommy, wouldn't you like more? And I would say, no, no, I I think I've had enough. Uh, And I remember at one point I said, you know, I think I really need to go to the restroom. (laughs) My brother's friend, Jack says, oh, no, (laughs) no, no, you can't do that. And then I realized what the game was. The game was that my brother had bet Jack something about the number of chicken pieces I could eat, and then I kind of channeled. I don't know if any of you ever seen Newt Rocking at, at Notre Dame, but I, I remember there was a speech. Uh, of, I, I don't know who played Newt Rocking at the time, but there was a speech about
1: Reagan, right?
0: No, Reagan played the Gipper. I don't know.
1: Oh, the Gipper. Okay.
0: But it was win one for the Gipper. So I was really. I was there eating chicken pieces to win one for the Gipper so my brother would win his bet. Wow. Yeah, but (laughs) great fishing stories. Okay.
2: No restroom visits, though, allowed, right?
0: No restroom visits. uh Couldn't Uh hurt. Seth, you have actually one interesting history about one of our family members that was involved in some legal altercation. What was that about?
1: oh okay yes so so we're thinking about um isaac linkowski right so um so th- this guy was not directly related to us but we have a common descendant so i think it's one of your like distant cousins maybe twice removed or something uh so he was in london in uh i guess this must have been about 1900 and. Um, he was working at a um, oh, so, I don't know some sort of. Uh, I guess I should have looked this up ahead of time, but some sort of. I think it's like checks or gold or something. Uh, some sort of service, and um, he uh, he evidently uh, that's what it, he was given some. I think it was it was gold to deposit somewhere. Uh, So this is not his. It was whoever ran this business. And he went out to deposit the gold. And um, I guess the the next part is uh, he was robbed, (laughs) but he didn't he didn't realize he was robbed. Uh, At least I mean, it's there's there's different versions of what happened next. But essentially, he he didn't realize he was robbed and then he he realized he wandered around for a little while and then he realized he should come back and report what had happened and as he's coming back he, two policemen come up to him and apprehend him as a thief and so then he was uh charged with this crime and he was tried at the old bailey in london and that's why we have a record of it and uh, he he explained that he was innocent and all these things but um uh, he, was, he was convicted of, of stealing this stuff. And um, then I think like a year or two later, so I, I don't think he did much time. He, d- he did some time evidently or else he escaped. But a year or two later, he immigrated uh, to Canada. Because I mean, I imagine once you're convicted of something like that, it's probably tough to get a job. And then he somehow he wound up in Western Canada but then he you know wandered around eventually, I think that side settled in um New York area. interesting, yeah, so so I guess the moral of the story is um uh, don't work in a business where you're likely to get robbed
0: <laughs> so uh, I guess the most distinguished Bitker in our family was our late cousin Boris. I think so. So tell us a little bit about Boris.
1: Uh, so Boris was born in um, uh, Rochester, New York. In I think it must have been the, uh, actually, I don't know, around 1900. And um, he, uh, he served in, in World War II. I don't exactly know what he did. Uh, but he became uh, an attorney. So he, he must have um, gone to law school at some point. And then he, uh, he became a very prominent uh, attorney at, at Yale. He was a tax attorney and he had a lot of diverse interests. Uh, he did write something on um, the possibility of black reparations. And I think he wrote that in the 70s. So he's ahead of a lot of the other people who were talking about this. And and I, I don't think it. Well, actually, I don't know how it was framed, but he he was making the case for it in terms of why it might make sense.
0: Actually, did he uh, write a textbook on tax law?
1: Oh yes, yes, he's written uh, uh, lots, and including that textbook. And he's um, uh, it was lots of people. It seems like really loved his uh, classes and and things. So he he was a uh, professor at at Yale, and you're right, he was very into uh, taxes but but you know this brings up another story. Sh- should we talk about Isaac? <laughs> okay, so so um, Isaac Bitker played a very important um, a role in, in in the development of law in this country, and in particular uh, real estate law so isaac bitker was um something of a wheeler dealer in manhattan in the early 1900s uh, very early 1900s and um apparently uh he stiffed a real estate broker out of their commission and this went all the way to the supreme court and isaac lost so he established the precedent that real estate brokers need to be paid their commissions
2: wow so that's the wow that's so interesting
1: yes yes
2: so are you going to help me seth do some research on on both sides of my family
1: uh i i i would love to Todd. i you, you know you know what's i i, I think it, make sure you said yes like... that's right <laughs> so so now it's like with with ancestry and these other sources it's uh It's very efficient and- Yeah, you
2: you just point me me in the right direction.
1: That's right.
2: I'm intensely interested suddenly. I'm like, you guys are making this sound so so cool. So
0: so when Seth was a youth, we would uh, frequently go to the grandparents' home in Colorado, but on the way on one of our trips, we stopped at Salt Lake City, where Seth accessed the library of the LDS church uh, to do some genealogy research.
1: Yeah, I, I think well, there was one in Mesa, so that was the other thing in Mesa, Arizona. That was that was the one that was more, more that was one that I accessed mostly.
0: Okay, but you did visit the one in in Salt Lake. I,
1: I saw it. I really didn't do much there, but I saw it. Yeah. One um, one of the things that's kind of recent nowadays in terms of genealogy is um, the the whole DNA thing, and in particular, there's some. Uh, services out there that can now help you get DNA off of like postage stamps. Oh, wow. So um, at at some point, you know, I I might send off some of these letters like you were mentioning uh, Uncle Max. (laughs) Maybe we can get them examined from one of these forensic genealogy firms.
0: So before we close, I think you have one wonderful story. Uh, We did have some Uh, cousins, young men at the time, who were part of the French resistance. Uh, This is the Ehrlichman family. Now, the Ehrlichman family are related to my maternal side, the Grossman side.
1: Yes, right.
0: Can we talk a little bit about them and where they came from and what did they do during World War II?
1: Yeah, so um, they lived in... uh, uh, Paris, or at least that area. Um, um, uh, I, I don't know if they left Paris, but but they they lived in Paris. Uh, they were um, the the son of a guy named Simon Ehrlichman and his wife Suzanne, and um, they were born. Uh, so, so the the older brother Richard was born in sometime in the 1920s. And uh, the younger brother, Gerard was born about 1930. And they, yeah, they they, they served in particular, uh, Richard, I think served in the French resistance, right? I I don't know the details of what they did, but but that's the, I mean, I think it's more than the story. I think it's true, right?
0: Well, I think what's important is that they survived.
1: Yes, yes, that's true yes and and interest and more than uh well their their uh their grandparents did not right so so that was that was um very sad so their their uh grandparents uh did not make it through so they 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 were killed i, I don't remember exactly where but at one of the concentration
0: camps so each, I, I think if you do have Jewish heritage, particularly Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, you are losing a fair proportion of your families. In fact, virtually all of our cousins who remain in Lithuania and in Poland were decimated in uh, part of the Holocaust in World War Two.
1: Right. I mean, I think the vast majority did, but even there, they're, they're like a, Miraculously, a few survivors. But you're 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 right. In general, it's uh, um, what there was a a family over there, in particular of um, uh, one of the siblings of your uh, grandfather, and uh, you know that family had I, I think like six or seven kids, and then they had kids and so on, and maybe just one or two people from the, those, those families, uh, survived. So it it was not, not a lot of people, but some people did, which is, you know, it's, um, moving and, and story that for those that did, obviously.
0: Miraculous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: I I think it really relates. And one of the reasons I'm most proud to showcase Seth's work is that, uh, If you're part of any minority group that has been targeted, you relish these heroic stories. And if this is about heroic self-transformation, we have several wonderful illustrations. Well, Seth, if I I could, I really, I'm very appreciative of your sharing time with us. And I'm sure our audience would appreciate hearing more from you because you are a font of wisdom. Uh, one of the great things about being your father is I can just stand back and applaud. Uh, you have done your own heroic transformations and and have just done a wonderful job of optimizing what talents you have. And uh, you are just a truly remarkable person. And I think our audience would benefit from hearing much more about your wisdom and your observations. Uh, and one other note, we still haven't talked about the great flu epidemic of 1918.
1: So... <laughs> we'll have to save that for the what remains of your audience for next time. <laughs> well, 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 thank you, Dad, and, and thank you, Todd. <laughs>
0: Well, for all you dragon slayers out there, we look forward to hearing from you uh, next time. And uh, we will add an additional installment next week. Todd, glad to have you back with us. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Be Mm. well, Seth. Love you, kiddo. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you.